1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hello, I'm Nanabba Duncan, in for Brent Banbury. This is day six.
1: Jonah Hill's ex-girlfriend, Sarah Brady, accuses the star of emotional abuse during their relationship. Asking her to remove photos and videos of herself surfing from her Instagram page. Jonah Hill is being canceled for setting boundaries. No, that's not a boundary, that is control.
2: Jonah Hill's boundaries and the weaponization of therapy speak. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, performative acts. If
1: you're saying that it's somebody else's land, give it to them.
2: Cree and Lakota playwright Cliff Cardinal takes on land acknowledgments. The heyday of hair metal. The hair, the makeup, the
3: costumes. Twisted Sisters' Dee Snyder and... Has anyone seen q Video game history has been saved to this extent by people who care about it. How to preserve gaming's disappearing history. All today on day six, the
2: 8-Bits or Bust edition.
0: Jonah Hill's ex-girlfriend, Sarah Brady, has taken to social media to share her experience of dating the actor and alleges that the actor behaved in misogynistic and narcissistic ways.
2: If you've been anywhere on social media this week, you've likely seen the screenshots of text messages shared by Sarah Brady. She is a surfer. She used to date actor Jonah Hill. And she says Hill asked her to take down pictures she posted to social media of herself wearing bathing suits. She also says he tried to control how she socialized with other people.
4: If there's anything that
5: Jonah Hill's situation has been clear on, is that we really do not understand the term boundaries. And a lot of us don't want to.
2: According to the text exchanges, Jonah Hill framed all of this as his boundaries for romantic relationships with women. There have been a lot of takes this week on what boundaries are, and what they're not, and what can go wrong when the language of psychotherapy seeps into our everyday conversations. Jessie Gold is a psychiatrist and an assistant professor at the Washington University School of Medicine. Among other things, she studies pop culture and mental health. Jessie, good morning. Welcome to Day 6.
4: Morning back. Thanks for having me.
2: Therapy speak has infiltrated our everyday language. We're using terms like boundaries and triggered with each other very casually. Has this always been the case or is something different happening now?
4: It's a really good question. I think that mental health speak has kind of always been around in that you could ask someone in the 80s, like, name a prescription drug used for depression, and every single person would say Prozac. So I do think we've used the terms, but as mental health has become more normalized and as social media has grown and TikTok's really popular for mental health conversation, I think these therapy words have become even bigger than they were
2: before in kind of common language. On one end it it seems like this signals more comfort with talking about our mental health, but is there a darker side to using therapy speak
4: so it definitely signals more comfort and as a psychiatrist i don 't want to be someone who's like, "We should not use these words, we should not be talking about it because I think for me it's really important that people who don't have access to mental health, which is a lot of people, that they can have some access to these terms, this information, to feel more seen, to feel more understood, for it to feel less alone. Mm -hmm. But I do think that when we use the words incorrectly, that can be a problem, but even more so if we use the words as sort of a way to weaponize something we know that other people don't know against that person.
2: Mm -hmm. So when it comes to Jonah Hill and his ex-girlfriend, Sarah Brady, the leaked text exchanges, they got a lot of people talking about what constitutes boundaries and what doesn't constitute a boundary. Can you clarify what experts like yourself mean when you refer to personal boundaries?
4: It's a good question. This is one of those things where I would actually ask people when they use the word what they mean by using the word because I do mm. think various people have various definitions of it. But at least from my perspective, I'm thinking about how that person exists in the world to create sort of a safe space for themselves. That could be how they interact in the world with other people. That could be how they treat themselves. That could be how they are in relationships. In the qu- kind of open conversation people have been having about this lately, it's kind. Of applying your personal boundaries to those of other people. We might have some things that we would like other people to do, but our job is not to control the behavior of other people. It's to become more self aware, to know what we prefer. Boundaries are about kind of self exploration and understanding how you interact in the world, not controlling the behavior of someone else in the world, if that makes sense.
2: It does. So we've got boundaries as one term that people are not using correctly. (laughs) What are some other psychotherapy terms people are using incorrectly?
4: Sure. I mean, from my perspective, because I am a psychiatrist, I think we use diagnostic terms a lot, and we don't actually mean the diagnosis. So when we say depression, we don't actually mean that we have like major depressive disorder. We mean we're sad. Mm -hmm. When we say we're anxious, we just mean we're worried. We don't mean we have anxiety disorder. right? When I use the term, I probably mean somebody has anxiety disorder. I think a term like bipolar is often misused to be sort of like changing your mind quickly or changing your mood super quickly. And if if you've ever met somebody with bipolar disorder, they would tell you that that lasts for days. And there are a lot of other symptoms that go with that, I think, because trauma conversation and relational conversations in particular are kind of trendy, especially on TikTok, Um, you know, all sorts of terms about attachment have become more popular. So I think we have to just also be aware that when we're using the terms like they were intended to be used in a therapeutic conversation that is built on trust and safety, that is about education and learning about yourself. And most of our peer to peer and most of our, you know, relationships and familial relationships aren't built on that. So it's a very different relationship to use those words in, and I think we just have to be careful how we're using them and in what conversations we're using them in and with this assumption that just because you learn them for you that you can then apply them universally to everybody else
2: mm. you know it's one thing to be mindful to not use these words incorrectly mm-hmm. or even unintentionally but it's another to deliberately co-opt it for the wrong reasons in what ways do you think therapy speak has become weaponized
4: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you're right, just are misusing them because they don't know because the way that it's used popular press wise or in social media is the way that they think it is. And so they use the word that way. And maybe I would view the word differently. And that just requires a conversation in terms of weaponizing. I think we've actually weaponized mental health and therapy for a long time. Like we have this history of like, Mm. if we don't like what somebody's doing, if we don't like something that feels like hatred or anger, we'll say like, you should go to therapy. And I've never personally liked how we've done that because I don't think that's right. Like if some has a behavior that you don't like, the answer is not necessarily like, go to psychotherapy. You do something I don't like, these terms can fix you, or these terms are exactly what you're doing, and sort of labeling someone in some way, and that can feel really hurtful, especially if you don't know what those words mean. But even if you do, you might have this understanding of the word. And when it gets applied to you, that can feel very hurtful, especially if it's coming from someone you love or trust or have a relationship with that that term feels like a negative statement or something really broadly applied to your behavior or personality that, I don't know, has a lot of connotations with it that feel really bad
2: now what about the people who regularly use therapy speak um, who could be seen as having done the work or they're more studied in the area of emotional well-being? If their intentions aren't right, could their use of the language make them more dangerous somehow?
4: It's a really good question. You know, I I am a person who likes that people talk about emotions more openly and thinks that's important for good, healthy relationships in general. And so, like, just simply using the words or being more well-versed in yourself and the words to me is not problematic. But when you use it as if you went through the same training I did, or you Mm. use it to label someone else and make someone else feel bad or make someone else, you know, think that you know something that actually you might not know because I can tell you a term applied to one person could look very different in somebody else. And you might not know that because you didn't go to medical school, psychiatry, residency training, and then see patients every week, right? Mm. Just because you know it doesn't
2: mean you can apply it to everybody. Well, let's talk about the professionals. Uh, When language from psychotherapy is routinely misused, does that make your work harder?
4: You know, I think of it two ways. So I would never say anything's all good or all bad. For me, what it's done is it definitely has brought more people in with like this baseline understanding, which I really like. You know, you might ask somebody else and they might say it's annoying because their job is to teach that stuff. But I see it as a learning opportunity. Like I said at the beginning, sort of saying, like, well, You looked up that diagnosis, you looked up that term, like, what does that mean to you? And how come you brought that to me? And why did it resonate? And let's talk about that. And it gives you a really good jumping off point for conversation. But on the other hand, if watching a bunch of TikTok videos or Reading a book made you learn something that I might disagree with. We might have a harder time forming a relationship and a trusting one because I might not be able to give you everything that you expect. Because you might say, I have this diagnosis, I know I have this diagnosis. And I might say, Well, it could be that, but it could be something else. And if you can't hear that or you don't have the leeway to hear that, it's a lot harder for me to do my job.
2: Jesse, thank you. No problem. Jesse Gold is a psychiatrist and an assistant professor at the Washington University School of Medicine. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend.
0: If that's what the Canadian government wants to do and, and force on our people, then so be it. Let it let it let us let us get arrested.
2: Protesters remained defiant this morning outside the Brady Road landfill site in Winnipeg. Yesterday, a judge issued an injunction ordering the protesters to allow access to the front entrance, which they've been blocking this week. The protests are in response to the Manitoba government's refusal to search another landfill site north of the city, where police believe the remains of two First Nations women are located. The provincial government says a search would cost about $185 million and that the likelihood of success is too low. Protesters say the refusal is a sign governments don't take missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls seriously. Winnipeg police believe Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron, both from the Long Plain First Nation, were murdered and that their remains are in the landfill. And... Investigators have taken statements from more than 70 survivors And at this
4: time, we believe there may be more than 200.
2: On Wednesday, the RCMP gave an update on an investigation into sexual abuse allegations at a provincially run detention centre in Nova Scotia. The abuse is alleged to have taken place between 1988 and 2017. No alleged perpetrator or perpetrators have been named and no charges have been laid. The investigation stems from a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of three men who say they were abused while they were at the center. In its notice of defense, the province identified Donald Douglas Williams, a swim instructor at the youth center, for almost 30 years. The RCMP says 70 people have provided statements to police and that they believe there are many more alleged victims out there. Still to come on day six, Twisted Sisters D. Snyder joins us to talk 80s hair metal, the joy of performing, and his first novel. I'm
6: Nanaba Duncan, in for Brent Banbury. And what I miss most of all is the reckless abandon of my live performances.
1: Old movies, old comics, old books, old everything, music, for the most part, if it has even minor commercial potential, is available. You can buy it legally. Uh, When it comes to games, that's really dire.
2: That's Frank Cifaldi. He's the founder of the Video Game History Foundation, and he was giving a talk about the bleak state of video game preservation. Like other art forms, video games are of interest to researchers in a wide variety of fields, from cultural history to epidemiology. But there's a problem. Older games are going extinct. Many of these early games just haven't been saved. Nobody in the
1: early days of gaming knew that in 40 years, people would still care about playing their creations.
2: Today, a lot of games can only be played through emulation. This is a process that recreates old games on modern devices. But these recreations exist in legally dubious territory. And at times, some game companies have cracked down aggressively on them
0: the tragic reality is that some of these illegal files are all that remain of these games. The question remains if we're okay with the casualties, if we're okay with companies like Nintendo gatekeeping thousands of games under the pretense of protecting their intellectual property and their fiscal bottom line.
2: Fans of retro gaming have argued for a long time that many classic games are really hard or even impossible to find, and this week a new survey seems to confirm that. The Video Game History Foundation just published a study on the current state of video game preservation, and the results are very bad. Phil Salvador and Kelsey Lewin are both with the Video Game History Foundation. Phil, Kelsey, welcome to Day 6. Thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. So, Phil, your report says that 87% of classic video games are critically endangered.
7: What does that mean? Well, when we say critically endangered, what we mean is 87% of video games uh, before that came out before the year 2010 are no longer in print in any format. They were designed for what are now vintage video game consoles or obsolete computer operating systems. Uh, so the only way to get them is to find a used copy and to have the technology necessary to play them. And broadly speaking, they're really not publicly accessible anymore. There's a real danger that in the uh, long-term future, or even just in a few decades, these titles will effectively be unavailable to a wide audience.
2: So how would we be able to get them?
7: Well, there, there's a couple of limited ways. One of them, of course, is to try to, uh, you know, find a US copy and get it to work on your end, which could be difficult. Uh, if you don't already have you know, a retro gaming setup, uh, the prices of all that are starting to go up pretty dramatically. So that could mm-hmm. end up costing you hundreds of dollars to get all that set up. Uh, you could also view a copy at a library or an archive. But right now with copyright law in the United States, at least, uh, you have to visit there in person and sit down and play that video game in the library reading room, which can be challenging if you're trying to work through, you know, like a hundred hour video game. That's kind of prohibitive to do. And the other option, unfortunately, is piracy. None of these are really ideal. Uh, We did this study to put some numbers to this and start asking questions about, okay, well, if these titles aren't going to be commercially available and there's no really good legal way to get to them, well, what do we do now?
2: So Kelsey, if we don't find a way to preserve these games, what do we lose?
3: Well, I mean, video games are a really big part of our culture. I mean, nearly everyone at this point, whether they identify as a you know, a gamer or someone who plays video games or not, nearly everyone does play some video games, even if that's just, you know, bejeweled on your phone. Mm-hmm. So it's an enormous part of our culture and a part of our history that we're basically losing the roots of. You know, we're we're finding it harder and harder to get access to and explore and dig into our past, which it's just not an ideal place for um, such a big part of our culture to be. These games, I mean, a lot of games, are, they're digital
2: files. So Phil, if they're not like physical books that can disintegrate over time, why can't they just be posted online?
7: Well, of course, there's copyright concerns to that. Obviously, these games, even much older ones from the 1970s or 1980s, are under copyright. Uh, And, you know, there's good reasons for that. The creators of these video games, the people who own the rights to them, you know, want to be able to release these things again and get them more widely available to be able to monetize their intellectual property. As we've seen with this study, that kind of doesn't happen in a lot of cases for a variety of reasons. Uh, libraries and archives are building collections of video games. They have physical cartridges, but for some of these newer titles, they do also have those digital files. And there are ways they can share those more broadly with researchers or people who need to get access to them. Uh, We have technology like something called emulation, which Mm -hmm. essentially mimics the behavior of what old game and computer platforms can do on a newer system. So you could have, you know, playing a Sega Genesis video game on your MacBook for instance. Uh, And libraries have, you know, have access to that technology. And there's ways to be able to securely share games with people who need them for research purposes. But with the kind of constraints we have right now under copyright law in the US, that's just not possible for libraries and archives to do.
2: So you had mentioned copyright. Kelsey, can you say more about what else is getting in the way of game preservation?
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so uh, video games are a very unique medium compared to a lot of other things that we do preserve in sort of our, our cultural institutions. So, you know, a, a book is a bunch of words on a page and it's fairly easy to represent that digitally, um, mm-hmm. either with a scan or even just retyping the whole thing. Um, video games are made to run on specific formats, and they often need specific tools, sometimes very specific control schemes i mean it's it 's an interactive medium so there 's kind of a lot of things going on there which makes it a lot more difficult, even if you have you know full and total copyright clearance to just do whatever you want with it you know it 's not as easy as what we 've historically had to do for other mediums that 's kind of the reality that video games are are stuck in and it 's Yeah, it makes it it pretty difficult to navigate. Yeah, and game
2: companies are are reluctant to preserve their own history. Why is that?
7: I think game companies want to re-commercialize their old games and get them back on the market and get it so people can play them again. You know, if you own that stuff, if you have the rights to it, you want to be able to make money off of it Mm -hmm. because they're businesses. And I, I think... What we've seen is they're able to do that for a select number of titles, for some of the really popular ones they can make money off of. Uh, When it comes to some of the other things we're talking about, this 87% of games that are critically endangered, they might just decide that there isn't really a lot of money in it. So I think in a lot of cases, you know, they might even have the ability to get these games back out of the market. But in terms of business sense, there's not really a reason to do it. Their goal is, you know, to make products that people will buy and that they can make money off of.
2: So, Phil, there are people who love these games and they have taken it upon themselves to build emulations of these games. What is going on there?
7: So this is something we actually love to highlight, which is that a lot of the work that's happening in video game preservation we like to say is being done by citizen archivists. Mm. It's the folks in the gaming community who are kind of, yeah, taking it upon themselves to develop these technologies. You mentioned emulation as an example, which is what we talked about earlier about, you know, being able to run games designed for old systems on newer platforms. Uh, a lot of the emulation technology out there that exists started in the fan community, but it's something that now is used by both libraries and archives, as well as the video game industry, because it's such a, uh, you know, it's it's a great starting place for kind of making these games work again the way we want them to. Uh, and I think it kind of, it goes underreported how much these efforts both in terms of you know academic preservation, but also in terms of the commercial market, have really come to depend on the sort of documentation and tools being developed by the fan community by these people who are are just care that much about these games.
3: And I, I think just to add to that, real quick, is just that um, the work that's being done by all of these fans and stuff—it's it, done in a very uh, in a way that kind of makes them assume the risk. You know, they put the time, the effort into all of this, and you know, not for any money and at their own legal risk. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, while we're incredibly thankful that, you know, video game history has been saved to this extent by this this groundswell of people who care about it, we'd like to make it a little bit safer, it basically just so there's, there's better legal avenues for this for people. And, and we don't have to sort of rely on this very gray area of the law to build the entire foundation of, of game preservation on. Can you
2: talk a bit about that gray area? What what is the legal risk if a fan is creating something that is like another game for other people to use?
3: Right. So, you know, the way a lot of this has sort of persisted online is that people have kind of collectively come together and they have these digital representations of of video games that you can play without needing to access the original hardware. The only problem is that, you know, as you're sort of distributing it throughout the internet, that i mean that starts becoming piracy at that point because mm. if you didn't take the data from your own property for yourself for your own use the united states classifies that as as software piracy so yeah there there's parts of it that are i would say in the in the legal clear and there are parts of it that aren't and there there should be other options than just these sort of like gray legal areas and and piracy angles
2: mm. Phil, what's the next step now that you've got this study?
7: One of the reasons we prepared this study is because every three years in the United States, there's a proceeding that happens at the Copyright Office where uh, we're able to basically petition for new exemptions to make it easier to do things like digital preservation. But the issue we've run into is this kind of this argument we were talking about, about, you know, is this impacting the bottom line of the video game industry? So we did this study really to uh, to sort of arm ourselves for these next discussions that, you know, we are definitely planning on going back and seeking additional exemptions that will make it easier for libraries to make their video game collections more widely accessible to researchers. And going into this now with this data and showing that, you know, the 87% of video games are on the commercial market will make it easier for us to, I think, make a strong case for why we need some of these additional tools. Uh, again, it was really just a matter of you know things we all kind of have known in the video game community but haven't really been able to prove in terms of making our case for why we need this. Uh, having done this study, we now have a much stronger case. The whole point of this conversation
2: is about preserving games because of how important they are to culture and to people, the people who, who play them. If you were going to be a vigilante game preserver, a citizen archivist, and could only save one
7: game, what would it be?
3: Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs)
7: <laughs> well, one of the examples we've been giving in terms of a game that isn't on the commercial market that I think is really important in terms of that big cultural significance is the original uh, The Sims game from the year mm. 2000. Uh, believe it or not, that game is not commercially available. And I think it's it's really a remarkable revolutionary game in that it's really kind of a game about us. It's a game about uh, kind of projecting ourselves into this world and kind of, you know, what life do we want to live? What are our priorities? How do we shape the world around us? You know, if I had to uh, sneak a game out of a burning building. It might be that one.
2: <laughs> okay, Kelsey, what's your burning building game?
3: I'll have a probably a pretty similar answer, which is uh, the original Animal Crossing as it came out in the uh, in the Western world, which was for the Nintendo GameCube. The newest version of that game, Animal Crossing New Horizons, was such a huge conversation piece of the COVID nineteen lockdown. Um, really blew up and and became a very social game for people Mm. and it's sort of starting point you know its origin is not available anywhere and from a historical perspective i think that it's really worth kind of seeing where where it began where it started kelsey thank you thank you so much and phil thank you too thanks for having us on
2: phil salvador and kelsey lewin are both with the video game history foundation
6: Sister, I want you to tell me. No, better yet, stand up and tell the class. What do you want to do with
1: your life? I want to rock, rock! I want to rock, rock!
2: And so they rock. Twisted Sisters' hit song, I Wanna Rock, was released in 1984, and when it came to going big or going home, 80s metal bands did it best. With big hair, lots of makeup, spandex everywhere, it was a moment in music history unlike any other. And next Tuesday, the new doc series, I Wanna Rock, The 80s Metal Dream, drops on Paramount Plus. It follows the stories of musicians trying to make it in the world of heavy metal, including Skid Row, Vixen... Mötley Crüe and Twisted Sisters Dee Snyder.
6: when they first started out MTV needed heavy metal and they really helped take heavy metal rebirth heavy metal and take it to a whole nother level Dee's hair
2: isn't quite as big these days and since his time as a headbanger he has acted he's performed on Broadway written a stage musical and this summer he's released his first novel Dee Snyder, good morning and welcome back to the show
6: Good morning to you. It's great to be here. I'm usually not up this early, but um but uh it's good to be here.
2: <laughs> I'm glad you are. Uh so people have who have seen you perform with Twisted Sister know you for the big blonde curly hair, the makeup, the tight pants.
6: It's still on my head. It's still on my head, but I've just uh-huh. uh, not wearing it full-blown. People see me, they go, dude, what happened to the hair? I go, dude, what happened to yours? (laughs) (laughs) And how do they respond? They go, well, you know, it fell out. Oh, mine didn't fall out, fortunately. (laughs) Still on my
2: head. Whose idea was it for you to wear the big hair and the makeup in the first place?
6: Well, my hair has a mind of its own. And when I joined Twisted Sister, they were very inspired by the early 70s glam bands. I joined them in 76, like the bands like the New York Dolls. Uh, but I got to give a lot of credit to my wife, Suzette, who's been with me for 47 years. She was always pushing me to be more adventurous and take more chances. Mm. She did all the makeup, all the hair, all the costumes, the logo. She did everything for Twisted Sister. So she was really this five foot three it's 110 pound, petite Brooklyn Italian behind this crazy man. And she just kept pushing me to get put on some lipstick. I don't want to wear lipstick. Put on some nail polish. I don't want to wear nail no polish. And I had pink <laughs> fingernails for like 20 years. So, uh, so blame her. Uh, I will when I talk to her. <laughs> <Okay>.
2: uh, <laughs> so when your kids and your grandkids see these old videos of you, what do
6: they think? I think they think I'm a Muppet. I think they think I'm like, oh, who's that, Sweetums? My <laughs> big raggy Muppet? You know, like, because little kids, not just my my grandchildren, but like I see it all the time on social media. Kids love those old videos. And I'm going, I know yeah. the songs are catchy. I know they're funny. But when they're looking at it, 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 I said, I think they think I'm Sweetums from The Muppet Show. It's It's the
2: visual, right? There's so much to look at. Yeah. It's fun. So music in the eighties, it was, it was such a different time. It was that fun time. Uh, but the heavy metal scene was particularly unique when you look back, how would you describe that time in heavy metal music?
6: You know, I am the great observer, uh, because I was not a participant. I was a participant in performing, but I was already Mm. married. I already had my first child by the time we, the band broke, I never drank. I never did drugs. Um, And, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about my book frats in a little bit. My first novel, Mm -hmm. I got the writing bug in 84 after doing the twist and scissor videos, which I created in my head. And I said, wow, this is kind of cool. So I, while everybody was out partying, I was in the back room, uh, practicing writing, 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 writing. And I got really good at writing, but I did observe and it was called the decade of decadence for a very good reason. Mm. I mean, you know, it was the Reagan era. And I think whenever you have a super conservative time politically and socially, you'll see a reaction. I mean, the hair, the makeup, the costumes, the, the drugs, the alcohol, the, the mass consumption, the level of partying. And I did not participate, which makes me incredibly boring. But I'm mm-hmm. still married. Uh, I still have my money. So I'm, I'm, you're talking to like the wrong guy other than the guy who was clean and sober enough to tell you, yeah, it's all true. It's
2: wild. So I'm going to move on to writing. Uh, You've got your first novel. It's called Frats. It's about a high school in the 70s and toxic masculinity in in those halls. What made you want to write about toxic masculinity?
6: To be honest, I don't think in those terms. I don't think in a lot of the contemporary terms. You know, when people talk about woke, I say I was never Mm -hmm. asleep. So um, so
2: in your words, how would you describe it? I'm, I'm using the words toxic masculinity, but how did you think of it?
6: I, I was just writing about a very intense time. High school, when I was in high school, the violence that was going on with the high school fraternities, which were just gangs that were sort of permitted by the school. And, you know, and I was in one of those gangs. I was the guy trying to avoid getting beat up by those gangs. So it was a very intense environment. And I wanted to write about it. Because I thought that was the way it was everywhere. And then when I started telling people about these high school fraternities who ruled the school, people go, what's a high school fraternity? What is that? So I found out, mm-hmm. oh, this didn't go on everywhere. So I wanted to write about this experience. And, yeah, it is toxic masculinity. And when you read something like this, you understand how it reverberates. Mm-hmm. And it goes on for generations. It's really hard mm-hmm. to break that cycle. And I am breaking mm-hmm. it. I did. My father hit me. I never hit my kids. But I'm still this intense, tough figure. I know it affects my sons because they feel like they're disappointing me, which they're not. I adore them, but they're not. none of them are as big as me and as bad as me and as tough as me. And I'm glad. They don't have reason to be.
2: Let's get back to Bobby. He has a girlfriend named Angel. And you write about their relationship with such affection. How similar is their relationship to the one you have with uh, Suzette?
6: There's a lot of similarities. You know, someone said, write about what you know. And when it came to a love affair and a long time love affair and, and a kind of crazy courtship with my wife's family being in the mafia and all that, um, you know, I I thought it would be, it was, it was a strong one to draw on. And uh, that's one thing, even though the book is, is based as fictional characters, everything is based on actual events. The only not true event in the book is the inciting incident when Bobby, I don't want to ruin it for people. Hopefully we'll read Um, when he sees his friend being hurt by these guys and he comes to his rescue, not knowing that these people who are hurting Brett are like the wrong people to mix it up with. And he becomes their mortal enemy. And he has now got to protect himself and defend himself. And his whole life goes into a downward spiral. But everything else in the book besides that moment is based on actual things that happen, including the courtship with Suzette and me. I mean, with Angel and Bobby. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Oops.
2: With Angel and Bobby. Okay, so Bobby Kovac, that's his name. He's, he is a metal fan. And the band in the book, Dusk, shares the name of your own high school band. So clearly music is still in your heart.
6: Well, it's actually, well, that's the only passing rate. It's set in 72, 73. And at the prom in the book, the band Dusk, D-U-S-K, is playing and bobby says the singer went on to become pretty famous and (laughs) i was the singer in dusk and we were in 1973 we were the band that played all the dances and all the things you know so so that was the only passing reference to me in the book actually
2: the guy who ended up becoming pretty famous pretty famous yeah do you miss performing with twisted sister
6: you know what I miss and i've and now I, I after twisted I did like three solo albums and um but i 've stopped doing that as well, and i 'm really putting that behind me mm. and do I miss it? yeah, and what I miss most of all is the reckless abandon of my live performances they weren 't thought out, they were the most childlike thing, my last touch with childhood, and mm-hmm. that 's what well, my performance I would just say. Uh, i'm gonna fall on the ground now and i just fall on the ground and start like thrashing around on the ground i'm gonna jump up in the air it was very much the idea would pop that's in my play, head and then i would D. do it
2: that's what you're talking about yeah. you're talking that's about play
6: yeah as adults we just everything is so yeah thought out and predictable and and you know was twisted right to the bitter end there was that frantic craziness of when i was on stage that I, and i'll miss that the reason i stopped it is though is i Nobody beats gravity and (laughs) I got something going wrong. I've had throat surgery, shoulder surgery, Mm. knee surgery, neck surgery. I mean, I've had so many surgeries and I just, I was able to play and I didn't have to think about it. Now I got issues (laughs) and I hate talking about it. So uh, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. Dee, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you.
2: Dee Snyder was the lead singer for Twisted Sister. His new novel is called Frats. And the documentary series, I Want to Rock, the 80s Metal Dream, is going to be out on Paramount Plus this Tuesday. Still to come on day six, Cree and Lakota playwright Cliff Cardinal on the problem with land acknowledgments and what we should be doing instead.
1: I think that they don't go far enough.
2: distinctly remember hearing someone yell stop that van. From CBC Podcasts, an investigation into how young men
7: are being recruited and radicalized on the internet.
1: And she asked me if I was friends with a guy named Alec Manassian.
7: By a new supercharged form of hate.
1: On Facebook, police say he wrote the incel rebellion has already begun.
7: A dark online subculture that's spilling over into the real world. Boys Like Me, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Nanaba Duncan, in for Brent Banbury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day 6. Wimbledon wraps up this weekend all eyes are on the athletes who made it through the finals at Centre Court but there's a team of six teenage students standing on the sidelines who played a crucial role Have you ever wondered about the Wimbledon Ball Boys and Girls? They are an elite group of 250 students who are hand picked from schools near the All England Tennis and Croquet Club About a thousand students apply every year but only 170 fresh recruits are picked to join a returning squad of 80 previous ball kids. It is a prestigious gig with a rigorous and competitive recruitment process. Alex Crockford and Sonia Eckstein were previous Wimbledon ball kids. Here's what they had to say about donning the distinctive navy blue uniform at the championships at Wimbledon.
0: I was born in New York, but at the age of six, I moved to London with my family, and I was in the British school system for my whole childhood, and those were really really my formative years. So when I was in year nine, I found out that my school put students forward to try out to be a Wimbledon ball girl or boy, and I was able to try out and make it through to the championships.
5: The tryout process when getting to Wimbledon, I think was probably around three months before the championships began. It wasn't actually at Wimbledon, it was across the road from the actual Lawn Tennis Association, there's another club or an extension of the club under this big indoor tennis area. This was a continuous assessment. And this was a week by week process of continuously learning doing all the skills all the fitness, but also The actual knowledge of the tennis game had to really come into play here as well, because what most people don't really realise is how much the ball boys really have to know about the game. In the tryout process, we were doing exams, assessments, multiple choice questionnaires that you had to get a minimum to pass to go through to the next stage. So I remember this process of on the courts doing the fitness and the skills and then also sitting on a desk doing an exam.
0: All of the weeks of training from February until June were a test and you could go home at any point if you weren't performing up to standard. But when I finally got my uniform and was able to put it on and know that the next week I would be working on the courts and there would be crowds and famous tennis players around was just a fantastic moment. It really felt like a rewarding experience for all that had led up to it.
5: Although I didn't get to ball boy for a session on Centre Court, I was invited for a really special moment in my first year. There's this thing called the Guard of Honour, which is when the winner, the finalist, wins. The court gets transformed into a bit more of a that celebratory moment, and there is this Guard of Honour, a lineup of ball boys and girls, so that the players can come through and get their awards etc and I was invited on for the men's final with Nadal and Federer and Federer won so that was a really really special moment for me to stand on that court with the magic and the atmosphere and the energy of all those thousands of people around cheering and to be around uh, the players
0: yeah so the moment I got to ball girl for Venus and Serena Playing in a doubles match was incredible. I loved being able to watch out of the corner of my eye them interact as sisters, as teammates, and individually as incredible tennis players. And they were super nice. So it was a really rewarding experience at that point to get to do something on such a big stage and see these two women who've had such an enormous impact on the sport and know that they appreciated our work as well because they were so kind and acknowledged everyone on the court, which is sometimes rare in tennis.
5: I'm so lucky to have had this opportunity. I know there's probably lots of kids, lots of teenagers, similar age, that love an opportunity like that. So I'm grateful for that. And there's there's real magic in the atmosphere around. So if anybody ever gets a chance to go to Wimbledon and enjoy it, then, then make sure you do. And don't forget to look at the ball boys and girls and to check to see if they're rolling that ball dead flat across the floor.
2: <laughs> Alex Crockford and Sonia Eckstein are both past Wimbledon ball kids.
1: They asked me to do the land acknowledgement today. I fucking hate land acknowledgements. I find them so goddamn patronizing. You want me to come up here with my feathers And my beads bless your little event, tell you you're woke. So I said I'd be delighted.
2: (laughs) That's playwright and actor Cliff Cardinal from his one-man play called Land Acknowledgements or As You Like It. He first performed the show in 2021 at Crows Theatre in Toronto. It was billed as a staging of Shakespeare's As You Like It, but it was not. When the curtain came up, Cliff Cardinal began his land acknowledgement and just never stopped. The result is a 90-minute play-slash-stand-up routine about why he hates land acknowledgments and what we should be doing instead. Cliff Cardinal spoke to Brent Bambury in April when he was staging an updated version of the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brent. Your show is 90
8: minutes long, but in 30 seconds, can you tell us why you don't like land acknowledgements?
1: I think that they don't go far enough. I don't think that by raising your hand and saying that you acknowledge the original caretakers of the land, you're doing a service to anybody, uh, except for yourself and your own little feelies. Um, I think that if you really want to acknowledge the people of the land, you should have a relationship with the Indigenous community. We should see you at, at uh, the powwow. We should see you at the Native Center, um, and not just paying lip service to some sort of virtue signaling hogwash that they've put down on a piece of paper for you.
8: But is it really hogwash? Like, how can it not be a good thing to remind people that the land that they're gathering on is contested?
1: It's not a bad thing, but it's not worth giving you an award for it. (laughs) You know, like, um, if you're saying that it's somebody else's land, give it to them. You know, if generally, if, if you're somewhere you're not supposed to be, you don't stand there and wave your hand about it. You just put your ski mask on and, and head back out.
8: <laughs> when you first put on this show with Crow's Theatre, some people apparently thought they were going to see As You Like It as soon as you wrapped up the land acknowledgement. What happened when it dawned on the audience that there wasn't going to be any Shakespeare?
1: Some people were thrilled because a lot of people, Brent, really hate Shakespeare. <laughs> they, don't, they, they, they came to see it because, you know, their partner dragged them along or, um, you know, who knows why. I have no idea why people buy Shakespeare, but they did. And then when they found out it was, and some people, of course, were really upset because um, they showed up. This guy comes out for the land acknowledgement, they don't like him, they have no idea who he is, and then he just goes on and on for 85 minutes about things that they don't wanna hear about. So I I can see that some people
8: weren't thrilled. Okay, well, when I was at your show last week at at Toronto CAA Mervish Theatre, you push the audience in a playful way, and then later, you push them much more forcefully. How far can you go in asking your audience tough questions, but still expecting them to stay with you.
1: You have to be able to keep them imagining, keep people's imagination engaged in what they're listening to. Um, if you say something too harsh or that they're not ready to follow, they're going to walk out on you You know, mentally.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: So you got to really be engaged with people and listen to the quality of the silence and the punctuation of the laughter and know... Okay, they're not ready to go with me there.
8: Yeah. And and, I mean, you're asking them questions. You're really asking the audience questions and they answer you back. But the night that I was there, just after you attacked the Catholic Church, the Pope, and the missionary oblates of Mary Immaculate, who played a key role in running residential schools, an audience member pushed back on you. Do you remember that? I sure do. What did you say to that person?
1: Um, What was really interesting about it was there were 40 Catholic educators there. Huh that night. Yeah. And they told her to shut up. <laughs> like the audience started yelling at her. And then I, you know, I tried to let her know that, hey, it's okay to be upset about this. Right. I'm upset too. Right. You know, we should we should be here together and be upset rather than you going off your way and saying he's an asshole and me walking off this way and saying they're crazy.
8: Yeah, you did not tell this person to shut up, but you said something like this, Cliff. You said, Don't you think I have sat where you're sitting now and listened to things that have made me angry. And then you said, I have. So let's agree to disagree and continue.
1: I think we did agree to disagree.
8: But I'm, I'm curious about what, what have you sat at and listened to that made you angry?
1: I've sat through 10th grade history class. I've sat through you know racist dinner parties. Um, I've sat through the national anthem and the Lord's Prayer enough times in sickening circumstances that I, I get it, I've been lied to. We all have. To be an Indigenous person in this country means that we are surviving in a system that tried to kill us. So, yeah, I've choked on a lot of lies.
8: Hmm. Uh, it's, it's really interesting how much you focus on actions as opposed to gestures in, in, in the play. And you talk about the difference between hashtagging an Orange Square on social media and writing a check to your local Native services outlet. And I think I know which one you think people should do. But, <laughs> do, do, but do you think that people will actually get to actions? If they don't start with gestures.
1: Maybe. Maybe you're right. Um, But also sometimes the gesture goes, okay, well, I did the land acknowledgement. I'm going to now climb back into my Mercedes and drive off to my hillside mansion and think I did a good job.
8: During the show, you also acknowledge being in an establishment theater and you poke some fun at very powerful corporate sponsors.
1: You know, that's my way of soliciting donations from them. (laughs) Do you think I'm off base there?
8: Okay, so you named three very powerful banks, but, you know, I would would have to describe your gesture when you you say that, when you name them, as kind of a sneer, right? I don't know. Do you think they're going to give you money? Are they going to write a check now?
1: Um, Absolutely. I I believe it in their hearts. I've heard their land acknowledgements. I know they care. (laughs) Um, Well, what would I say? No, just because this bank, you know, absolutely helps run pipelines through indigenous land, you know, rips through treaties and destroys rivers with their affiliation with chemical companies. Does that mean I'm going to not take their money if they offered it? And, and don't get me wrong, they haven't. Right. <laughs> but if they did, uh, you know, we are living in a very conflicted society. I contradict myself many times in the play. You know, because I don't know the truth.
8: When you talk about the relationships between Indigenous people and everyone else, you explore a few possibilities. You say we could be friends, we could be allies, we could be family. Which one of those three is most preferable and which one is least?
1: Well, I think that discluding each other from our homes, from our ceremonies, from our holidays has gone far enough. And I think that calling yourself an ally is just for you. It's for your own Feelings. It's for the ally, it's not for the person that they're allied with. Mm-hmm. If you really care about these things that you profess to, you should be friends. Because look, it's so easy to say, well, history is long, and so history is a story of one culture displacing another. Mm-hmm. Ignorant, uncultured, unsophisticated view of history. This culture is still here. There are 1.67 million of us in Canada. Mm-hmm. And there are still, you know, problems and conflicts on treaties, on lands that we're dealing with. We're still here.
8: About the land, the land that we acknowledge in land acknowledgements, you say in the play, the land will be fine. <laughs> so what would you like the person experiencing the land acknowledgement to acknowledge instead?
1: I mean, that, that we, sh- we should know each other. We should make an effort to know each other. The commitment to the land should be in our relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of Christian Catholic people in this country. You know, you got a thing called do unto others. I think they've forgotten about it. I think they learned on the first day and then forgot. Mm -hmm. And we have a thing called all my relations, which means that we're all related. You know, we believe in similar things. We should be able to get together on these things.
8: Cliff, how is Shakespeare like MDMA?
1: Well, I wouldn't pay for it. (laughs) But sometimes it's free. (laughs) You know, the Shakespeare part of it, the idea of as you like it, it's about these people who leave the city to go into the forest to solve the problems of the city. Uh A lighthearted pastoral kind of skipping affair. Yeah. Um, And so it seemed to be the perfect kind of show to do. I I have no idea because, look, I can't afford to go to Stratford. And I find Shakespeare so goddamn boring. <laughs> like, it's just so, it has nothing to do with me. And I understand that, you know, the, the central themes of, you know, of jealousy or, you know, honor, you know, they, they do touch on each other's lives, um, but not as much as like a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. That being said, although I think that most of the stuff is crap, I do want to reach out to anyone at Stratford and let them know that I have a great new adaptation of William Shakespeare's As You Like It. <laughs> And I would love to come down there and, and, and play it for them.
8: Cliff, it was great to talk to you. I enjoyed your show so much. Thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thanks. I was just kidding about all that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> See you, Cliff. See you, man. Thanks a lot. Playwright and actor Cliff Cardinal's one-man play is called Land Acknowledgements or As You Like It. He spoke to Brent Bambury in April. I'm Brother from the Headlines. Ah! This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue.
5: card game, card game, card game It's a card game Card game,
2: card game it's a card game Don't you That's Beyonce with Single Ladies Drax with Card Game And The Eleven Spoonful with Do You Believe in Magic Susan Spence of Halifax Guess the headline we were looking for ultra-rare one-ring game card found by Toronto Collector. Congratulations, Susan. A Day 6 tote bag is on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue.
5: You can see all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Boulevard.
2: What is the story that connects those rifts? Email us your answer, put rift from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer is going to be picked at random. And the prize is a day six tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day six.
6: I'm weather
2: and From the headlines. Ah, yeah! That's our show for this week. Day six was produced by Laurie Allen, Samir Chabra, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfutadese. Our intern is Rihanna Lim. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiok. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. Thanks to Mikhail Cuillar and Alexandre Duval in Ottawa for their help this week. I'm Nanaba Duncan, in for Brent Bambury. Thanks for listening to Day 6.
6: I'm usually not up this early, but uh, it's good to be here. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.